you from Chicago, Illinois, DB Comedy presents The Electables, Presidential Sketch Comedy and History for People Who Can't Afford Hamilton. Today, a bonus talkback. During our discussion about Dwight David Eisenhower, we here at DB Comedy along with resident historians Dr. Chelsea Deneau and James McRae, discovered three different but really important cultural trends, all of which emerged in the 1950s, all of which couldn't quite fit into our main episode, but all of which we think and hope you'll find interesting. The discussion also features Joe, Paul, Sandy, Patrick, and Sylvia, part of the regular DB comedy crew. Enjoy! Bonus Talkback 1, Eisenhower and the Interstate Highway System. Okay, so what does the Eisenhower administration actually set about doing? Um, So one of the things that they set about doing is they start building the Interstate Highway System. Um, And... Oh man, I wish everyone could see Chelsea's face right now. (laughs) Wait, talk about a seemingly innocuous piece of legislation that will have a massive effect on American communities. Um, In some ways, this is an important piece of legislation. In some ways, it's a model of government efficiency. One of the things I'm always... Like, they passed this thing in 56. By 58, they're, like, completing freeways. And I'm just like... What? How did they do that? In two years? Well, we, they, yes, we know they've how. Building, they've been building 94 for like 10 years. <laughs> Try 40. Uh, but well, they built it the first time in like three. It's like they built the thing from nothing. Well, I mean, it helps that they plow multiple yes. uh, multiple neighborhoods, particularly in oh, cities, particularly neighborhoods oh. of color. Oh, uh, what was oh, the name of the guy in New York, who the big urban planner who... Robert Moses. Moses. Uh, Robert Moses. So Chelsea and James. Okay, the decimation, <laughs> the desecration of these of these neighborhoods. How much of that is Eisenhower, and how much of that is local power brokers like Robert Moses? Well, it's and it, it has to be a combination of both. Oh, sorry. Go go ahead, James. It's Eisenhower, like only this much, right? Okay. Eisenhower was just again the on the radio on a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> only this much. <laughs> James is holding his fingers approximately two inches apart. Very small way. It's like he's trying to clash people's heads for those of you who are kids in the hall. He's holding his fingers exactly an Eisenhower apart. It's it's fascinating. (laughs) Uh, um, Actually, an Ike apart. Continue, James. (laughs) And so, and and honestly, if if a Democrat had been in in president at the same time and the same bill came before him, I have no doubt that they would have signed it. But that was the politics of the time. That was the mood of the country at the time was that we have cars. We want to drive them. You know, I, I, well, I it's I'm not sorry. even cars, James, right? It's, it's suburban sprawl. Yes. Right. Well, that created the sprawl. It was also civil defense. It's civil. Well, the bill was passed as a civil defense, defense bill. Was it right? Not? Yeah. It's civil defense. But, but please explain large, why I don't get it. A lot. I'm sorry. Got to get tanks across from one end of the country to the other. And get people out of the centers that can't get into their fallout shelters. And got to provide emergency runways for planes. Silly. Gosh. I just went to school. Damn. (laughs) (laughs) Right? It's So it's civil defense. We'll teach stuff. 
it's civil defense. And so you're able to argue for enormous outlays of money because of, again, our conversation that we started with, the military industrial complex, it's always easy to ask for money for defense reasons. And that's one of the reasons why this program just like shoots out the gate, right? And starts building highways because they're flush with cash. So it was an honest belief that we needed highways for civil defense. It was not a cynical ploy. Well, and so, right? And so- Chelsea's waving her hands for everyone. (laughs) Right? Um, And so the other, I mean, to me, one of the, I think, stronger arguments for why there's such political push behind getting the Interstate Highway Act passed is because of suburbanism, right? You need to, as, as the government supports federally subsidized suburban housing for white, especially veterans of World War II, to get out of cities and to buy land in the suburbs, you need a way to push these people back and forth from their suburban homes to their jobs in the city. And so what came first, Levittown or the Garden Freeway? Levittown. Hmm. Yep. And of course, it, it doesn't hurt that they need cars. So for my friends in Michigan, this is the mighty years and like to me the my favorite symbol of what detroit was like in those days uh once upon a time i was an olympic nerd and i want to say between 1952 and at least 1968 detroit was a finalist every year to host the summer olympic games never Uh, made it but they always bid and they were always on the final list have you guys seen the video that jerome cavanaugh does where he kind of presents detroit as the city of tomorrow and and tries to it's a great video it's it's, i'm gonna find it james it's so good um, it's on youtube the power of the the auto industry is basically how they like killed all the streetcar systems Mm -hmm. on the west coast which they killed one here too of who framed roger that's right um, but I and mean, some other movie called Chinatown, I think. It, it was a <laughs> no, that was water. That was water. <laughs> that was water. <laughs> yeah. And so again, you know, I think that in in other times, in other places, and perhaps in other places in the world, at the very same time, every moment, there was an effort to regulate and nationalize public transit, but then continue to expand and intensify its use. In the United States, we decided not to do that. We decided, mm-hmm. eh, who needs it? Get a car. Bonus talk back to Eisenhower and television. I think this is a great opportunity to point out that Americans' brains are getting more tuned to the cheap lure of consumerism rather than analytical thought. Short sound bites. Luckily, that was never an issue again. Right. Uh, never probably again. But Chelsea, he, wouldn't, don't you think that started in the 20s, though? We elected some... Consumerism? The shorter, the, um, the shorter attention spans and the rampant consumerism, having people settle for glossy but empty candidates like Warren G. Harding and Herbert Hoover. You know, I... We have often talked, I think people who have listened to any episodes of this podcast know that one of my favorite things to talk about is um, consumerism and divergent economic class system, which starts 
in the um what do you call it help me james the the gilded age revolution yeah revolution <laughs> <laughs> different Let's country but shorter. <laughs> shorter attention spans well when they invented writing right because before that they had to remember everything That's and after that people. they could write stuff down and they didn't have to remember it anymore kids with um, their cuneiform um so i think you know i think the argument doesn't short attention spans and the rise of consumerism does it start in the 1920s i don't i don't know that we that we can point to the 1920s i think we either need to go backwards to the gilded age or we need to even go or we need to say it's right now it's the it's the 50s it's that post-war high consumerist era Hey guys, what is the difference between I like Ike in a in a cute cartoon and Tippecanoe and Tyler Two in a glass of cider? Uh, well, Roy Disney wrote I like Ike. That's what. Oh, really? Oh. Well, he produced the cartoon. He 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 he, uh, he was involved in the production of the cartoon. And you and if you see some of the ad, there actually are some ads where people are asking Ike questions. Also, I'm calling him Ike. Listen to me. Uh, that's how good those ads are. <laughs> well, also but, I, Paul, but he's uh, actually very much at ease, which was not true. Of a, I mean, jump ahead to 1960 and the Nixon debate with Kennedy. That's not always. I mean, people are still getting used to this television thing. I mean, Ike I, is quite Paul, natural. Truman. And yeah, jump Paul. back to Truman, right? Truman is very uncomfortable with the media. And Paul, I, I will say uh, the difference between I like Ike and typically and Tyler too is. Tippecanoe and Tyler 2 references things. I like it's it's like, hey, remember these things that, that this candidate did? And also he has a vice president there somewhere. I like Ike is just, hey, I like Ike. Although I it's like worth Ike, noting Ike that uh, the there really wasn't a battle of Tippecanoe, but will that I mean, someone you, you can go back and listen to the William Henry Harris uh, it's also it unified because it makes for a really compact neat button that's easy to remember it rolls off the it tongue and nice it's really but can also I, I it's make a statement here hmm? it's on television that's what I was gonna say Jay right? has like three channels maybe <laughs> if you're lucky you know or including um, Dumont yeah so there were a few um you know, it, it, history television is really interesting because it starts out, it, it's totally bifurcated like radio. There's individual stations. Um, and then like radio, it starts to kind of get shoved into these narrower channels. But then even more than radio ever did, it really starts to become chain controlled. And so either you're, you know, an NBC affiliate, you're a CBS affiliate, Dumont hung around for a little bit. Um, it's, it's kind of like the American Motors of television. Um, and then it's the Pan Am of television. <laughs> hey, Dumont um, had Ernie Kovacs. You leave Dumont alone. And, but uh, and so yeah, so it, it really becomes something that has very tight corporate control, so that the channels of distribution to the American people are narrow, all right. And so if, if it's on TV, Americans will see it and hear about it. And who controls whether it's on TV? A very small group of corporate bull you know, board members and CEOs. And luckily that them. was never a problem again. <laughs> Some of right. them were very tight with like, Chelsea and James, I'm going to throw another wrench. After Chelsea thesis, says is... what she's been trying to say. No, it's totally fine. I was just, so James, I'm actually really happy that you pointed out the TV argument because your TV argument is not the TV argument that I was going to make, right? The difference between I like Ike and Tippecanoe and Tyler too is one is the actual medium, right? One required 
reading words. The other one is, right, is spoon fed to you in this visual medium that all you have to do is open your eyeballs and it shoots into your brain, right? And so it's the actual delivery medium is different. And I think that really matters. TV party tonight. So. It's a black flag reference for everyone who wasn't a punk in the 80s. Yeah. Um, but I would say you're talking attention spans, though, Chelsea, but, and you're talking about TV, TV's monopoly, James. The thing is, that does not, to me, that does not translate automatically to a shortened attention span because I've been reading about, when I was reading about the McCarthy hearings, those damned Army McCarthy hearings were on... T- TV for 100 some odd hours, something very odd. And both McCarthy and um, I believe Adams, the Secretary of the Art, the Undersecretary of Defense, they were allowed to make half hour shows on primetime with no commercial interruption. So my argument about, it's not necessarily about short attention spans. I don't know Mm -hmm. if I actually said that, but but if we have a recording, so we can go back and see, right? <laughs> My argument is not about short attention span. It's about the medium of TV does not require you always to engage in deep analytical thought about the information that is being pushed to you, right? But I feel like at the time, TV, there was a lot more information being pushed to you. Right, you see part. it on TV, it is truth, it's real, right? And I, that's part of what TV was marketed as, during that time at the same time i'm sorry I just, I, no, because ahead. the other thing about tv in the 1950s which is impossible for all of us to think remember it was new yeah. it nothing like that had ever been in our homes ever so every and so the, t- the medium it, in that way the right? medium itself is learning as we're going there me you know which is why half hour because what else are you going to do we've got time to fill we got to keep the tra- we've got to keep the transmitters going that ike that eisenhower had someone like roy disney that could understand that so er- you know to get him into the presidency says a lot i don't think while eisenhower was comfortable he certainly wasn't aware and manipulating the medium the way Kennedy would a little bit in the way eventually handlers did and do to this day. Bonus Talkback 3, Eisenhower and the Birth of the Counterculture in the latter half of the 50s, an actual cultural underground. And because I teach in an art school that still, in my mind, weirdly reveres the beats, but this is the rise of the beats of Kerouac and AKA Ginsburg. And slightly the, cleaner, but no less annoying hippies. Oh God, yeah. And um, I wrote, I've written a play or two about, the, about some of the protests of the 60s and a name that emerged as very inspirational eventually to some of the movements of the 60s was a sociologist from Columbia University named C. Wright Mills. A lot of the social movements in the 60s and 70s came from him. And basically he talks about the power of the individual to change history. 
and also where the individual belongs in the social context. And it's sort of the first and kind of a defense of the individual, which again, when you think about the culture of the 50s, the myth is conform, you know, conform, conform, conform. But, but it's also, right? I'm not gonna, sorry to interrupt, mm -hmm. uh, Joe, but it's also kind of like this, um, it echoes this great man history that comes out of the 1950s, right? In the 1950s, you have a group of historians who are writing very traditional great man, quote unquote, history. And then in the 60s and 70s, you get an era of revisionist historians. And then in the 80s and a little bit into the 90s, you get some kind of counter to revisionists. And then you get a counter to the revisionist with a more traditional history. This happens in cycles. And so it's, it's really interesting that you mentioned that because it does reflect the brand of history that's being written at the time. Especially when you have a president that arguably embodies this great man theory. And like, other incomplete squareness. Although, yeah. um, <laughs> correct me if I'm wrong, is, to what extent is beat culture, you know, jazz culture, and to what extent is rock and roll the whitewashing of black culture? Or the interweaving of it to create what we would now think of as an American culture. Since we are now undisputably in the American century. Bum, bum, bum. I mean, rock and roll is a amalgamation, if I get my history right, an amalgamation of both jazz and country music, right? And, and, blues. And, blues. And, and blues, right, right, right. And country is just a, uh, sorry, all you country fans out there. It's a bastardization of black music, right? Of Southern music. Um, um, there are forms of gospel that are... I mean, yes. the, the form, yeah. the form gospel, of country music... Right, mostly comes out of a black tradition, a black yeah, the, church tradition. The form oh. of popular country music that became the parts that became rock and roll were largely, yes, uh, whites' appropriation and evolution of uh, gospel music like uh, uh, bluegrass which was also which a lot of southern uh, music that had been influenced by you know south uh, west african mm -hmm. music brought into uh, the, the american south yes i like the term appropriation um, rather than bastardization mm -hmm. at least until the beatles and the rolling stones re-warp it with that weird british thing that they and did. i mean largely until like the the 20s it's it's a lot of cross-pollinization and like uh co-evolution before we get to like the big recording contracts that that created the the white country star of the 1930s and Sylvia, it looks like you want to say something. I was just thinking of Elvis with his rise during the 50s and how he was appropriating a lot of Black music, but he was more palatable um, to a more mainstream audience. Yeah, and I think and Elvis is a good uh, example, too, because it is he is a person growing up in Memphis. He is uh, immersed in this sort of mingled white, white and Black culture. Um, but he is picked up by record labels and promoted as sort of a 
a black, a white a boy white, that sings white, like black, yeah, like, like a clean white, Tom a clean white boy who can market this sort of, and who gets verified, interest. and who gets verified where on the Ed Sullivan Show on television. Um, I'm sure that's by, uh, you know, and like uh, we're not going to photograph him above the waist, although. Before he, did Ed, before he did Ed <laughs> Sullivan. Yeah, that would have been 130. Right. But before he did Ed Sullivan, he actually did another show, the Steve Allen show, where he sang the song Hound Dog to an actual Bassett Hound in a costume that, according, to, according the... to Steve Allen, he said, no, no, Joe, Joe, that, wasn't, important... that wasn't a parody. Very important I question, Joe. Uh-huh. Was Elvis in a costume or was the dog in a costume? The dog was in a costume. <laughs> All right, Elvis was, and this was long before the Aztec Cape phase. Um, but Elvis <laughs> supposedly knew it and approved of it. And, um, but that predated the Ed Sullivan. But again, but again, white, white, you know, yeah, that's not... where we knew the white, the, the white teenage girls. Yeah. And uh, then Paul, Paul I, I'm not sure the same point can really be can be made as strongly about the beat culture um it, 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 it is like it is deeply jazz influenced but like mm -hmm. i think the sort of like white bohemian poetry side is, but it's, yeah, but it's the first time since the 20s that you have well some people call it under underground culture in the 60s it was essentially referred to as the counter culture which right. is very much a reaction to the mainstream culture. And I'm also thinking of Norman Mailer's essay, which unfortunately I've never read, called The White Negro. I was just thinking about that, uh, where he was, de uh, he basically was saying how you know, uh, Black people were more free because they lived outside of uh, mainstream rules. Um, and they we chose to actually do that and live a more freer lifestyle. And then you had Baldwin who came back and said, yeah, it's not a choice, actually. Mm -hmm. So stop trying to make it sound like this is a great thing when we aren't even able to. Adjust. Chelsea's been trying no. to say something. Oh, no, I just I think that's right. Like, yeah. Any we're all hanging out I, in like Paris cafes because they don't discriminate against us, not because we like any episode where we can have a James Baldwin reference. I am <laughs> um, wait but, till he gets on Dick Cavett in the 60s. <laughs> I don't have a lot to say about countercultures, but when I teach it, one of the things that I try to emphasize is that the counterculture itself t oftentimes tends to die out, and so you know, the beats don't find a whole lot of them anymore. Uh, you know, hippies have kind of come and gone. And come to Columbia College, Chicago, they're everywhere. But, <laughs> but they tend to have long-lasting impacts on the mores of society. So right. the things that the beats do tend to eventually leak into, to some extent, the social mainstream. Um, I think with the beats, their kind of rejection of conformity and their embrace of an individuality has become a hallmark of American society in many ways. Um, and I think later on with the hippies, their kind of rejection of the sexual mores of the time and their rejection of the formal standards of dress, again, have become aspects that have been kind of leaked into the mainstream American society. An interesting kind of examination would be to the extent that corporate culture appropriates the counterculture All the time. All the to time. then push that on, because basically corporate culture sees the writing on the wall and says, oh, everybody wants to wear a t-shirt now. Okay, let's make T-shirts, um, and then 
you know, uses that kind of associates itself, however, temporarily with the counterculture to then kind of pursue the profit making ends of that thing. And if I may throw a theory out and maybe something we can play with in future episodes, this, the, I, I mean, I, I don't think you can say Eisenhower was in any way, shape or form aware of the underground culture of the culinary culture, or even to some extent, popular culture that changes in a huge way, starting with Kennedy, where you have presidents that are either really aware of the culture and the way they're changing it, Clinton, Obama, or consciously fighting it, mm-hmm. Nixon, Bushes, um, and um, so we're we're sort of right at that moment where suddenly the presidency, in some ways, becomes interwoven with culture in a way that we've never seen before. This may be the last presidency where it's not it's not woven in yet we can see you know we see what's about to happen but it's not there yet that's my that's my thesis and i'm sticking to it it makes me think of the very like meta self-referential um bit that obama did at like i don't know i think towards the end of his presidency where his cookie is too big for his milk glass and he tries to dip it in he goes thanks obama <laughs> I, I believe that, that was the last uh, press point conference dinner. DB Comedy presents The Electables. This episode's sketches were written, produced, and performed by Gina Bocola, Sandy Bykowski, Joseph Fedorko, Ramona Joy, Sylvia Mann, Paul Moulton, Patrick J. Riley, and Tommy Spears. Original music written and performed by Throop McClurg. Audio production by Joseph Fedorko. Sound effects procured at freesound.org. Contributions to DB Comedy are graciously accepted by going to the DB Comedy donation page at fracturedatlas.org, the nonprofit fiscal sponsor of DB Comedy. Donations are tax deductible to the fullest extent allowed by law. For more information on DB Comedy and the Electables, visit DB Comedy's host page on simplecast.com. Follow us on Facebook at DB Comedy or Democracy Burlesque. Join us on the Trinet Network and listen to us on World Perspectives Radio Chicago on Live365.com and Hard Lens Media. Thanks for listening. Thanks for downloading. Don't forget to subscribe and don't forget to like.